If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I hope as you make your way to that um, passage of Scripture and figure out from the heading perhaps in your Scripture passage that you don't go, oh, not that one again. You know, we have, uh, one of the things that's fun growing up in a, in a family where we're, we're, we're trying to do the right things. We don't always. But more often than not, we find our evening habit is reading through a Bible story. And when you start off with little kids, those Bible stories have lots of pictures and not a lot of words. And as they, they get a little more advanced, the pictures get a little smaller and the stories get a little longer. And we've done read through every kid's Bible you could possibly imagine. And now we're just into the Bible stories. And uh, it was not uncommon for four or five-year-old Davis children, when we get through a new Bible story and get to 1 Samuel 17, for them to go, Dad, you can just skip that one. We've heard it already. And so I hope that's not your attitude this morning when we talk about the story of David and Goliath. And I love, just in a beautiful manner, how what we have sung this morning and what we're going to hear proclaimed from God's Word dovetail together. We talk about the great things that God has done for us. And we talk about His beautiful name and all the praise being for Him. And we see these exact same themes that we have sung in worship displayed in this passage. But the problem with this passage about David and Goliath is there are some serious, out of context, whatever it means to me, kind of approaches to it. <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever seen the, um, the guy that goofs off in high school who just knows that he's got to go to college. Now, it doesn't matter that he's gotten straight Fs for four years in high school. He, he, he believes that God's going to slay that giant in his life called, you know, the SAT. And so he's going to sign up and God's going to fight his battles for him. He, he don't have anything up here except rocks. And so that kind of goes with the David and Goliath story too, I suppose. But God's just going to make him pass that test when he's never passed a test in his life. Or that, that guy, perhaps it was you, who was really shy in middle school. And you like that girl on the other side of the cafeteria that was way out of your league. But you know what? You were going to claim the promise that God was going to fight your battles for you, and you were going to ask her out to the middle school dance to your <laughs> forever shame when she says no. Or maybe you've made that fateful and ill-advised trip to the Bass Pro Shop. Oh, many men have uh, stumbled and fallen there. And you know when you look at your budget and you look at the price of that pontoon boat that there is no way that you can justify putting this in your expenses. But you, you serve a God who's a giant killer. So you put it on your credit card and you're going to let God kill the giant of debt in your life. Those would all be inappropriate applications of that passage of Scripture. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> this is not on the screen, but it's in your notes. When we talk about the story of David and Goliath, it is not really about Goliath at all. It is about the gospel. It is not really about facing problems in life, but God's provision in Christ. And yet we have turned this into a very self-centered, God is more interested in my self-preservation, in my comfort than, than I am. And so we've said, it's not about Goliath, it's about the gospel. It's not facing problems, it's God's provision. How do we see that in this story? How do we see this name above all names who deserves all glory, worship, and praise? Well, it begins, as all good stories do at the beginning. So in 1 Samuel 17, verse 1, we're told that the Philistines gathered their forces 
for war. Now, if you know anything about your Old Testament history, <clears throat> you know that God had bequeathed, he had um, given as an inheritance the promised land to the children of Israel. And their job was to go in and occupy it fully. That meant the expulsion of the people who had, and this, this, is, this is a biblical theology word, who had polluted the land with their idolatry. And they deserved, because of their idolatry, to be expelled from the land. So the children of Israel, uh, beginning under Moses, who got them to the edge, and then Joshua, who led them in in conquest, their job was to go in and occupy uh, the promised land. But when you get to 1 Samuel 17, it says, The Philistines gathered their forces for war at Sukkah in Judah, and they camped between Sukkah and Azekah and Ephes Damim. Here, the Philistines, the pagans, are invading the land that was given to the children of Israel as their inheritance. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on. And I find this very interesting when you compare and contrast David's conflict with Goliath with David's conflict with Saul. I mean, we all know Goliath intended to kill David. He just didn't get, he didn't even get warmed up. The battle was over before he even had the chance to pull the sword out of its sheath, as we'll see in just a few minutes. But Saul... Saul threw a spear at David several times. Saul got closer to killing David than Goliath ever did. And it's an interesting story as it plays out. But what has happened is the Philistines have now reversed what was supposed to happen in the conquest. And they find themselves inside the promised land, in uh, the tribe of Judah, arraying themselves for war against the children of Israel. Perhaps they had heard stories of Saul's madness. Saul... um, had not obeyed the Lord, and God removed his spirit from him. And it says that an evil spirit from the Lord began to torment Saul, and Saul went mad. He went crazy. And perhaps emboldened by Saul's weakened state, maybe the Philistines thought, hey, this is a good time for an incursion. Let's strike while their leader is dealing with personal issues. But what happens is the exact opposite of what was supposed to happen in the promised land conquest. And we see as the story opens in the first 11 verses, what we call representative warfare. It says that the armies of the Philistines arrayed themselves on this mountain, and the children of Israel and their armies arrayed themselves on this mountain. There was a valley in between them. And the, the, the idea was for each of the armies to choose a representative warrior so that there was less bloodshed. It sounds, sounds kind of civil, you know, kind of like the Olympics. Let's have a competition. And if our guy wins by killing your guy, then um, we win, and if vice versa, the same thing happens, then you win. So the Philistines choose a giant, a physical, literal giant, over nine feet tall, to come and be their representative warrior. And while it sounds more civil, the stakes are actually quite a bit higher. Because once you think about this, they weren't weren't civil in the sense that they didn't want to just kill thousands of people. The idea was, the less people we kill, the more slaves we get, as a result of the victory. So if we have our 10,000 go against your 10,000, well, that's a whole lot less slaves than if we go one-on-one, and now we get everybody. So it's, it is, from a bloodshed standpoint, a little more civil, but it's much higher stakes because it means slavery for everyone. So we're told in the story that the uh, hero in the story, David, is the youngest son of a family. And three of his oldest brothers are specifically named as being in Saul's army who are camped in the army camp uh, listening to the challenges coming from the Philistine camp. And so David's father, Jesse, 
uh, sends David on an errand to deliver rations to his brothers and to their commanders. He says, hey, I want you to take bread and cheese and wine and give them to your brothers and check on their welfare. And oh, by the way, make sure you give some to their commanders too. He knows, um, kind of like we all do, we want to um, bless and encourage the people who are looking after our kids, don't we? We hope that perhaps maybe they won't get put on the front lines. Maybe, maybe there's a relationship that happens. And so David gets to be the errand boy, the bread boy, who uh, delivers these rations. In verse 23, we know in, in 1 Samuel 17 that David arrives. And as he arrives, uh, they're kind of mustering out of their camps. So everybody's uh, woke up, they had their Wheaties, you know, drank their coffee, and uh, they're going out to the battle line where they assemble, and uh, the Philistines assemble, and David gets there right as the troops are marching out. It says that he meets his brothers, he greets them, um, and he hears the challenge. He's not back at the camp, he's at the battle line. And David is a little ticked at what he hears. He hears this giant blaspheming God mocking the armies of Israel, And we know from verse 16 that what David hears now for the first time has been happening daily for 40 days. So for 40 days, Goliath has come out and mocked and taunted and challenged and said, hey, we've got our representative right here. Can you find a man who's willing to come and do battle with me? And it's at this point when David hears what he hears that we see our first indication of what the gospel is. And the point that I make here is that you can tell what someone's gospel is by what they identify with. You can tell what someone's gospel is by what they identify with. So what defines you? If somebody comes up and says, you know, um, there's a guest here today, and two of you who are church members are talking and saying, hey, yeah, you know about this guy. Well, who, who is he? How do we answer the question about who somebody is? How, how, how t- tall they are, how short they are, color of their hair, what they do for a living, married, single, kids, all things that are accurate, but is that really the core of your identity? Some people identify by what they drive or they identify by who their sports team is or who they work for or with or their marital status. There are all kinds of things that we can use to identify. But for David, his identity was in the Lord. So when he hears this challenge, he's just ready for it. And here's how we see some of David's identity. It's in his first words in 1 Samuel 17. We know that when David uh, goes to meet his brothers that they talk, because the Bible says he saw his brothers and he conversed with them. There's no dialogue that's recorded. There's none. The fact that he communicated with his brothers is communicated to us in Holy Scripture, but there is no dialogue in verse 23. It's not until we get to verse 26 that we see David's first words. Look at what he says. Verse 26. It says, David spoke to the men who were standing with him. What will be done for the man who kills that Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Just who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? See, David knows his Old Testament a little bit better than his brothers and comrades in arms do. David knew that they were supposed to be giant killers, and it just seems like everyone else in the army seems to have forgotten that episode of conquesting activity. And David is aghast. 
when he finds out that this challenge has been happening for 40 days, that not a single man has had the guts to step up and take care of this man that was not blaspheming them, but blaspheming their God. Because the idea was in representative warfare that Goliath just didn't represent the Philistines. He represented the Philistine god Dagon. And that whoever represented the armies of Israel didn't just represent the armies of Israel. They represented Yahweh himself. And so ultimately the contest was not simply between two men and their armies, but whose God would win. And the fact that no man from Israel was willing to stand up for their God the way that Goliath was willing to stand up for Dagon meant that people had just lost confidence in Yahweh's ability to save. So how do you know what somebody identifies with? I mean, it's all good and well for us to say you can tell what someone's gospel is by what they identify with. Identity can be identified by observing someone's passions. You want to know what somebody identifies with? What are they passionate about? USC football! Yay! Jesus Christ. Woo! You're just naturally passionate about some things and maybe not passionate about others. So what somebody loves will tell you a lot about what that person really ultimately believes. Their family might be the little g, God, and gospel in their life. Their paycheck might be the little g, uh, God, and gospel in their life. Their comfort might be the little g, God, and gospel in their life. But when you hear David's words in verse 26, do you hear just a little bit of passion? If, if, we could, um, if I could read to you the Scott Davis translation, this is what David said. How dare he taunt God? Who's going to go out and stone this punk to death? Because the punishment in the Old Testament for blasphemy was stoning. And David says, I'm your huckleberry. Here am I. Send me. He's blasphemed. He deserves to die. I know I'm not in the army, but I'll go. He's passionate about God's glory, not personal contempt. And so David's passion kind of gets, um, gets patted on the head. Hey, little boy. That's great. Maybe he got his, uh, his cheek pinched. Oh, they're so cute. That sounded weird. His brother, Eliab, you know, thinks that there's some kind of just, you know, wickedness in David's heart. You came out here just because we don't have TV yet. You're here to watch the show. There's wickedness in your heart. No, he's genuinely passionate about this. And his passion eventually reaches Saul's ears. And in verses 31 through 39 of 1 Samuel 17, there's a very interesting interaction between David and Saul. And here... In this episode, verses 31 through 39, David's gospel is seen in what he's willing to fight for. You see, it's, it's interesting. We have passions about a lot of things, but when it comes time to put up or shut up, we'd rather shut up than put up. It's easy to vote pro-life. It's different to actually do something besides vote once every four years to work for a pro-life cause. And I don't say that to be offensive. I know everybody here is pro-life. But what have you done besides check a box that actually is an action to indicate that you're pro-life? How are you encouraging a mom that's struggling? And, and, and maybe because of um, relational difficulty, financial difficulty, uh, abortion is a very real consideration for her. And, and all you do is vote? 
maybe you have the opportunity to act on something that you say you're passionate about, but your passions aren't the only thing that identify you. What you're willing to do, what your actions are, help to define who you are and what your gospel is. So David says he's willing to fight. It's not just his passions that identify him. It's his actions that he's willing to undertake. David, in going to fight Goliath, is completely willing to disregard his own safety and his own comfort. It's not safe for him to go out and fight a giant. It's not comfortable, but he is ready for the privilege to fight for God, to sacrifice everything. Everyone else is chickened out, and David, who's the only non-soldier perhaps in this battle line, is the one who volunteers. David is consistently, throughout his narrative, underestimated. He's constantly given the pat on the head and the pinch on the cheek. As a matter of fact, in 1 Samuel 16, just a chapter before, God has removed his, uh, <clears throat> his anointing for leadership from Saul and tells Samuel, the prophet, to go to the house of Jesse because from Jesse's sons, the new king is going to be anointed. Now, Jesse had eight sons. David was the youngest of the sons. And so when they hear that they're going to have a dinner party with Samuel, the prophet of God, <laughs> somebody's got to watch the sheep. And they don't even, David doesn't even draw the short straw. It's not like a series of unfortunate events where, you know, he paper, rock, scissors, and he just loses. He's just underestimated. He's not even brought to the dinner. He's left out with the sheep because even his own family just kind of underestimates little old Davy. So uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting. This comes back into the whole equation. Uh, his oldest brother is Eliab. And it says when Eliab came before Samuel, Samuel said, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Why was Samuel impressed with Eliab? Anybody know? He was tall. Always hated that, that leaders got to be tall. You do that when you're five foot nine, you know? Um, he was underestimated. His own family didn't invite him to the old dinner, to, to, the, to the dinner of the prophet. And it says that Samuel went from brother to brother to brother to brother to brother, went through all seven of them, and he said... Let me check my directions here real quick. Yeah, it's the right place. Do you have any other kids? Well, yeah, there's David. We're going to have to have like dessert now because we're going to have to send somebody to go get him. He's over the hills and through the woods. Get him back and he brings him in and he says, don't, don't look at people on the outside. Look at their heart. Look what they're passionate about. When Saul meets David, he does the exact same thing. He says, boy, let me tell you something. You're just a lad. You're just a, a wee little boy. You see that guy out there? It's in his DNA to be a fighter. He's, he, he was kicking butt and taking names when he was in, you know, Goliath school, you know, Philistine giant school in first grade. He's been bred for war. And you're just a little boy who's not even old enough or qualified to be in the army. He gets patted on the head and kind of sawn on his way. And in verse 37, David has the audacity to speak back to the king and say, uh, no, sir, King Saul, sir, I think God has prepared me just fine to do what I'm about to do. Look at verse 37. God's word says this, Then David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the paw of the Philistine. It doesn't really say that. It says the hand of the Philistine. But he said God had been training him in his job as a shepherd. His responsibility was to rescue the sheep from both the bear and the lion, which he had done bare-handed, no pun intended. And by saying what he does, the God who has delivered me from the bear, from the paw of the bear 
in the paw of the lion and will deliver me from the hand of this pagan. He is saying that Goliath and his defiance of God has become so beast-like that it's just another animal that he's going to go out to slay. Saul, I'm ready for this. God will deliver me from the hand of this pagan just as he has delivered me from the paw of these predators. I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this. So Saul sees his determination and finally, as the king, he decides to do something. For 40 days, Goliath has been going out and uh, uh, issuing this belligerent challenge and the only other giant in the camp besides Eliab, David's older brother, is Saul. You know why Saul, everyone was impressed with Saul when he was chosen as king? It says that from his shoulders up, he was taller than anyone in the entire nation of Israel. So Saul is the most giant-like person, and he's the king. He already represents the people. He should have been the one claiming that Yahweh would be the one to save him to go out and kick some Goliath big giant tail. He doesn't do it. But finally, he does something. And here's what he does. He says, um, well, listen, boy, you can't just go out there. So let me give you my armor. Let me give you my sword. And, and here's what's so bad about this, okay? Not, not only is Saul a coward, not only is Saul a coward, he wants some credit. Hey, you're willing to go. And like, if you lose, we're all dead anyways. But if you win and you use my armor and my sword then I get at least an eensy-weensy-teensy bit of a credit with it. Isn't that terrible? That's terrible. The leader is not wanting to, as we just saying, give all the praise to God. He wants just a little bit for himself. God's not going to mind, will he? It's going to be so small compared to the praise that we give to him. Just a little bit for me would be okay, right? Man, that's a danger for you and I too, isn't it? Do you really want to give all praise to God? Or aren't you pretty smart and can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? No, hey, listen, God gave me all my talents, but I used them really smartly. I was really wise in how I stewarded the gifts God gave me. No. Praise to God alone. Apart from the grace of God, you would mess it up. You would mess it up. But Saul wants a little bit of credit. So he says, hey, David, why don't you take my, um, why don't you take my stuff? And David says, no, I think, I think God has prepared me with sticks and stones. Oh, yeah, and I'll take my sling and I'll be good. And here again, David's gospel becomes clear through where he placed his confidence. He didn't have any confidence in man's gifts that they want to give him. He has confidence that God will deliver him. And here's the thing that's crazy, okay? <clears throat> the Bible goes into exquisite detail in verses 4, 5, and 6, describing how tall Goliath is and how much his breastplate weighed and how, much the sha- how big the shaft of his spear was and the, the, the sword, the um, spear point on top, how much it weighed. It was like 25 pounds. I don't know if you can imagine throwing a spear point with whatever, an eight-foot rod, throwing something and actually it going further than two feet, it actually being an effective weapon. I mean, this was a big, strong dude that he's using a spear that weighs probably 45 pounds and he's able to use it as a long-distance weapon. Let's just say I don't know that um, most of us would get by the first few rows trying to have the 45-pound spear. goes into all this detail about how Goliath was armored and how he was armed. And Saul wants to do the same thing with David. He says if this is how pagan idolaters are going to fight their battles, we have to fight our battles the exact same way. So David, 
armor up, get armed. You need, you need uh, spears and you need shields and you need daggers and you need breastplates and you need greaves and you need helmets and you need shields. You need it all. Saul doesn't get something that David gets really well, that God will win his battles his way and we don't have to stoop to the world's way of fighting. And yet constantly we think that preaching the scripture, preaching the gospel enough is not to save people. You know, now we need, we need um, celebrities to get saved and then people will believe the gospel. Well, no, I, I don't know if um, David Hasselhoff got saved that anybody else would come to Jesus. I really seem to doubt that. I don't know if we happen to elect the right president that it's going to change anything on a spiritual level. It might change some things on the surface level. I don't know if this is gonna really going to change our culture. We're not a theocracy. And yet we always think we have to fight the way the world fights. And so Saul does everything he can to try to make David look like Goliath. We do the same thing. We'd rather put our trust in politics than the gospel of God. We'd rather put our trust in anything else. And David has the integrity to say, no, I'm not going to fight the way the Philistines fight. I'm going to fight the way that God has prepared me. It might be unorthodox. It might be a bit unconventional, but God has saved me before this way. And I don't care what he has. I'm going to fight the way God wants me to fight, not the way man tells me to fight. And it is interesting to note that if Saul would have gone to fight Goliath, not only would it be giant against giant, but the weapons of their warfare would have looked identical. God wants to fight his battles his way with his tools and not give credit to man's wisdom because man's wisdom is not wise. David shows tremendous humility. What would you do if your supervisor told you, hey, I need you to do it this way? Hey, it's not even really a supervisor. It's his king. It's his king. You know, and the, the humble thing might be to say, yes, sir, King Saul. And, and, and David says, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't trust the, my ability with a, a shield or a sword to save me. My trust is ultimately and explicitly in the Lord. So despite uh, Goliath's belching mockery and threats, David replies that his faith in God is enough to save him and will protect him more than anything that any man can give him. He doesn't need a magic wand. He doesn't need a, uh, you know, uh, something splashed with holy water. He's just like, give me some rocks. Point me in the right direction. Where do I go? So listen to verse 45 through 47. I love this. Listen to David's identity and his passion and his willing to fight and his confidence in these verses. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a dagger, spear, and sword, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel's armies. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, cut your head off, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will hand you over to us. David, as the shepherd of his father's sheep, had uh, protected them from dangerous predators. And as the newly anointed uh, but yet unrecognized leader of God's flock, he intended to fulfill the jot and tittle of the Old Testament law and to go out and stone this giant for the blasphemy that he had committed. 
The main point in all of this is not about fighting as an underdog. This is not an underdog. While it is an underdog story, the point is not, hey, sometimes the underdog wins. It's not about fighting your battles as an underdog. It is about living life under God. Under God. It's your identity. It's what you're passionate about. You're willing to fight for it and fight for it the right way because your confidence is in God alone. As the story concludes, it says that David's faith, you know, like if I was David, I'd be asking for cruise missiles and long-range weapons. I'd want to nuke him from like 30 miles away. I wouldn't want to be anywhere close to Goliath. But it says like when it, when, when it gets down to rubber hits the road and, and David starts coming out, Goliath is just laughing at him, saying, so you don't have any men? You're sending boys out to fight me with sticks and stones? Ha, 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 ha. It says that David's faith literally allows him to run to the battle. No, there's no nerves here. There's no anxiety. There's no lack of confidence. He is ready for this fight to get it on. Ring the bell, blow the whistle, whatever. I got a job to do, and it's going to be, I'm going to be the last man standing because God's going to protect me. So listen to what it says in verses 48 through 51. When the Philistines started forward to attack him, David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistines. David put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, and hit the Philistine on his forehead. And I love this, in case you want a little TMI. And the stone sank into his forehead. That thing wasn't coming out. It was a permanent accessory. Um, And he fell on his face to the ground. David defeated the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And even though David had no sword... He struck down the Philistine and killed him. Then David ran and stood over him, grabbed the Philistine's sword, pulled it from its sheath, and used it to kill him. Then he cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they ran. I don't know why, but I haven't found a single children's Bible that has that in their pictures. (laughs) They don't have the whole story. What's going on? And so we see God delivers David and gives him this incredible victory. And as we've progressed through the story of David and Goliath. We've noted that this is not simply a historical record of ancient Near Eastern warfare. It's not just a history lesson. It's a story of the gospel. Well, how? Well, we've given some indications of how you can know what your gospel is. What do you identify with? What are you passionate about? What are you willing to fight for? What actions do you take? Where's your confidence? But there's four very quick pictures uh, that I'm going to give you right here. There's nothing in your uh, book, I think, to write Um, but four pictures that I think help us see how this is a foreshadowing of the gospel of what Jesus would do for us. The first is this, Goliath is pictured. Goliath is pictured. In verses 4 and 5, we know, uh, we get a a very intricate description of who Goliath is. And here's the thing that's interesting. You have to take all of biblical revelation to kind of get where we're going to go right here. So please uh, keep your seatbelts fastened here. This is going to go kind of quick. Um, his armor is described in great detail, his size, the, the weight of the different weapons that he has, the armor that he has. And he is fighting as a representative of the Philistines and fighting as a representative of Dagon. He's also fighting as a representative of Satan himself. Satan is described as the great serpent. And in verse 5, when it describes his armor, his armor is specifically in the scriptures, a good literal translation. It is described as scale-like armor armored like a snake, like scales overlapping each other. And so when you take this chilling description of this 
belligerent attitude that is defying God and this pagan background and uh, defiant attitude and this representation of a pagan God, Goliath becomes the quintessential picture of everything that is opposed to the knowledge of God. It's a lot more than just representing his people. He's representing his pagan God who ultimately represents an incarnation of Satan himself. So Goliath is pictured. Number two, David foreshadows. Not only is David the hero kind of in this story, he goes out and is the savior of the Israelite army by killing the uh, representative giant, but we also know that the savior, capital S, savior, will come from David's line. So David's historical saviorhood is a foreshadowing of the ultimate saviorhood that would come through his lineage. Number three, Genesis prophecy. The very first prophecy of the gospel is found in Genesis chapter 3, where we're told after Adam and Eve's sin and they're being cast out of the garden, that um, the serpent would bruise man's heel, but that the seed of Eve would one day crush the serpent's head. That's a proclamation, a foreshadowing of the gospel. And I find it interesting that at the midpoint of the biblical revelation from the Garden of Eden to the Garden of Gethsemane, right here, smack dab in the middle with David, you have a representative who is involved in the Bible's unfolding revelation of the gospel by cutting off the head of a man with scale-like armor who represents everything that is opposed to God. Why does he cut his head off? I mean, there's, <laughs> this is not G-rated. There are a lot of other ways you could effectively kill the guy. And he was dead before he cut his head off, according to the scriptures. Why cut his head off? It's a fulfillment of this prophecy. But number four, and this is, this is where it sticks for me, is the Jerusalem skull. In verse 54, we're told that, uh, well, look at verse 54. It says, David took Goliath's head and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. It's one heck of a memento. Not the head, I mean the sword. He kept Goliath's sword, put it in his tent. And then he took Goliath's head and he sent it to Jerusalem. Now you sit there and go, oh, Jerusalem, that makes sense. That's the capital, that's the holy city. That's the capital. Uh, Not yet. Not yet. One of David's first acts as king is to conquer Jerusalem. Jerusalem at this point is not a Jewish city. There's no Jewish inhabitants. It is solely and uniquely occupied by the Jebusites. And David crawls up, sends his mighty men. They crawl up through a a, a water, uh, a well, and invade the city and take it over. And David makes Jerusalem his capital. So why why wouldn't he send it back to Jericho or someplace that's a stronghold for the Hebrew nation? Why does he send it to Jerusalem? I mean, is this just a trivial detail? that happens to be included at the end of the story, and you read over it because you know Jerusalem. That's the, that's the Jewish capital. But that would be anachronistic. It's not happened just yet. And the only thing that I can think of is that the one who would most ultimately and finally crush the serpent's head once and for all would do so how? By allowing himself to be killed on a hill outside of Jerusalem, at a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, you go to the Holy Lands, and they'll tell you if, you, if you turn your head and the sun is just right, it looks like a skull. Baloney. 
I think the story of David and Goliath is a much more historically reasonable explanation for why that place of death is called the place of the skull than trying to do geographical origami to make it look like something. I don't think they're talking about a geographic reality. I think they're talking about a theological truth that outside of Jerusalem, Jesus died at the place where David put the head of a giant that represented everything opposed to God as a foreshadowing of what would happen. So the story here, friends, is not about God slaying your personal giants, God overcoming your debt or your timidity or your lack of skill in any given area. It is about what Jesus has already done by facing sin and Satan and that he has once and for all finally and fully accomplished salvation for his people. That is awesome. Jesus is the hero of the story. This book is not about you and me. This book is about God and about the great things that he has done. Thank God he has done this for us and that now by faith in his son, our champion, we can become sons and daughters of God. David knew he was not the Savior. His confidence was in God and God alone. And that confidence he got because his identity was in his belief in God. His identity was so much in this belief in God that he was willing to fight for it. It was the basis for his confidence. And even when he came face to face with a physical, literal giant, he could do it with confidence because he knew God fights battles. And so for us, our faith is not in ourselves. It's not in our wisdom. Our faith is not in religious wishful thinking. It's not in, you know, self-help, self-pep talks. It's about faith in Christ, the only champion who has the name that is beautiful enough that is fully worthy of your worship, of your devotion, and of your action. And by the way, If God is willing to slay the greatest giant you will ever face, you can trust him with the smaller things in life, right? This doesn't mean you're not going to, the next time you go to the doctor, it doesn't mean you're going to get a happy report. It doesn't mean that the next time you get a paycheck, you're going to be really pleased with what is or maybe isn't included on that stub. It doesn't mean that your kids are always going to turn out right. It doesn't mean that your car's never going to break down. But in the matter of eternity, most of those things that you think are your giants really are just speed bumps on the road of life. God has acted decisively for his people in Christ by defeating Satan and defeating sin. And the promise for us is that we experience that victory in Christ when we have faith in him. Have you placed your faith in him? And if you have, are you seeing how he and his victory is influencing your identity more than just the circumstances of your location, the circumstances of your birth, your family of origin? How is Jesus causing you to live and to walk in the victory that only he can give? Father, it is humbling for us to admit that we need a Savior. It is humbling for us to admit that there are things that we face that we do not have the arsenal to deal with. And Father, I think that's part of the reason why this story is in here the way that it is. 
David had no confidence in himself, but he had full confidence in you. And Father, I pray that we don't run around like pseudo-modern-day souls trying to earn a little bit of credit for how good we are. But we understand that there's nothing good that dwells in us. And the only reason that there is anything is because of what you have done for us in Christ. You have made us pure, uh, not because we are pure, but because you have included us and ad- adopted us into your family. So Father, I pray that you help us bow before the awesome and powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that today you help us to see an incredible beauty in your Son, our Savior. And that the confidence that we can develop from the faith that we have in your name, that it will make us bold against every object that raises itself up against your Lordship in this world. Father, embolden us with the gospel because you have given it to us as a gift. And you have won us back for yourself by the blood of your Son for which we are all grateful. In Jesus' name.